Welcome to Sentient Planet. If that kangaroo is looking at me and into my lens, or that rabbit who's next in line for slaughter, or that calf who's 20 minutes old, wet from birth, taken away from her mother, she's in a wheelbarrow. All of those animals who are looking at me are looking out at you, looking at the audience, and asking us the questions that I see in their eyes when I go to them. What's happening? What is going to happen to me next? We have all the answers and they have all the questions, and it is simply unfair. Hi, and thank you for tuning in as we launch the second season of Sentient Planet. I'm your host, Susan Woodward, and we have a ton of great conversations to share with you about our relationship with nature and our more-than-human animal kin. Later in the season, we'll be bringing you an audio documentary about the plight of koalas in my Australian homeland. So many people down there are working hard to bring them back from the brink. Today, though, we kick it all off in this interview with the acclaimed and influential Canadian photojournalist, author, humane educator, and founder of We Animals Media, Joanne MacArthur. I've been following Jo's work for a long time. She is one of the most courageous and inspiring people I've ever had the privilege to talk with. Her travels across more than 60 countries to produce intimate images of animals in some of the darkest front lines of mistreatment has brought their suffering and our betrayal into the light for all of us to see and do something about. Look for our short bonus episode today, exclusive to Sentient Planet listeners. Jo talks about her new award-winning book, Hidden, Animals in the Anthropocene. We're thrilled to have the chance to give a signed copy to one of our listeners. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for your chance to win. Joe MacArthur, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And I'm thrilled to have you as a guest. And I have so many questions for you. So let's see what we can cover off in this time that we have today. I'm so happy to be here. Let's jump right in. Okay. Which came first for you? Your love of animals? or your love of photography? And how have those two intertwined as you've progressed through life? Oh, that's a fun question. And I'm very lucky that they did intertwine. I don't think it's often that people get to combine their two passions in life. Well, it was the animal love and the animal concern that came first. I was a a young child when I would bury squirrels in the backyard who had been hit by cars. And I was always begging my parents to have small animals around the house, guinea pigs and hamsters and birds. My social life to an extent revolved around giving them lots of space, letting them out of their cages, enjoying the birds flying around the room instead of keeping them in a cage. I would tend to dogs that were chained up in a backyard. Uh, I was always very attentive to animals. And it was when I was exploring and falling in love with photojournalism that I realized that I could combine my passions, which was my concern for animals and my love for storytelling and my love for the camera, which for me is a a tool for navigating the world and an all entry, all access pass into what's going on in the world and into the lives of others. It's been great. Yeah. Was there a moment that, or an event that happened where you could see that these two things could so beautifully come together and that this was what you wanted to do with your life? 
there was a moment, there was an aha moment where I was standing near a monkey, a chained up monkey in Ecuador. And there were several of us taking a picture of this monkey, but people were taking their picture because they thought it was cute and funny and whatever they thought. But I was taking a picture because I thought this was really problematic. This was an abusive relationship between humans and non-human animals. And perhaps I could tell that story from my point of view about the monkey through my pictures. And that's what photojournalism is about. It's about it, you know, exposing a different story from a new point of view and an important point of view. And that was definitely one of those moments where a seed was planted for the We Animals Project. Great, which of course is the is the name that you've given to this massive body of work that you've been doing for a long time now. You've almost single-handedly, or perhaps you have single-handedly pioneered the genre of animal photojournalism. Describe this genre for us, what it captures and exposes and the outcome that you're striving for. Yeah, it's such an exciting place to be right now. We Animals Media, which grew from my project, We Animals, decided that we wanted to coin animal photojournalism to give a new and important space for the hidden animals, as we call them. So in photography, we have, there's so many genres and those that come close to what I do are conflict photography, conservation, animal photography or pet photography, uh, street photography. But the thing is, not a lot of these will take a close look at the animals we have a really close relationship with, those we eat, those we wear, those kept in labs. All of those stories are, you know, they remain hidden. And a lot of the media don't want to see it. And a lot of the photographers aren't shooting that work unless they are investigators, unless they're invested in animal rights. And so I thought, well, let's give a name to what we're doing exactly, which is animal photojournalism. It's newsy, it's relevant, extremely relevant to right now, and how animal welfare also overlaps with the problems of the day, like climate change and pollution, factory farming, deforestation, human rights. Massive problems. Ooh. Yeah. And, and so we coined this and I thought, oh my gosh, we're gutsy. We're going to get so much pushback. Who am I to coin a new genre of photography? But it's been very accepted so far. It's been embraced. A lot of interviews about it. A lot of people starting to call themselves animal photojournalists. So we're on the right path. Yeah. And you mentioned the reluctance of the media to expose the violence and cruelty against our animal kin. I mean, everywhere. But, but that also seems to be changing and perhaps through the the genre that you've created here. So what is your sense of where the media, the, the mainstream media stands now? Is there more acceptance? I'd say there's a growing acceptance. I would say that the door is starting to open, you know, not of course, just because we've created this thing, but because animal advocacy has so many shapes now. And there are so many of us pushing open that door, be it ethologists, neuroscientists, lawyers, artists, journalists, uh, climate warriors. I mean, the story is just impossible to ignore now. And if we are to ignore it, it just doesn't make sense. It means we're going to continue on this path of the world literally crumbling around us because of us. And so animal use needs to be addressed. And we're seeing that more and more. It's really exciting. You'll hear me say that a lot. It's really exciting. I don't mean to be repetitive and like sound so shallow. It's exciting. It's exciting. But really, it's a great place to be right now. 
focusing on animal advocacy and the overlapping issues, it's where we can make great progress and help curve climate change. And because we know factory farming contributes to climate change, for example. Uh, So there's a lot of work to be done here. It's fantastic to see you so energized by the work as opposed to others who work in animal advocacy and animal rights who feel a lot of despair um, because it's hard work as well. I would say the despair is there, but is balanced by the catharsis of the action we're taking. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about where human and non-human existence merge. What are the connections you see between we humans, um, who are also animals, of course, and the animals that we share the planet with, who we share the planet well, with. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my job, as I see it, is to look at and point out the hierarchies that we've created between ourselves and different species. We appreciate the charismatic animals and the companion animals, but there's this uh, this big void all of the others, but who are the others? They are pigs and chickens, fish who are very hard to uh, to feel for, to feel compassion and empathy for because they're so different from us. We don't even see them, they're underwater. All of these animals who are complex and sentient and brilliant and fascinating, we should have a relationship of awe for them, but we don't. Uh, we have evolved over time into being a invisibly carnist society. Carnism is an ideology. I see it and I learned that from Dr. Melanie Joy. She's a brilliant psychologist and she coined this term carnism, which is the predominant ideology. People think that veganism is an ideology. Well, it is as well, but it's not the predominant one. But we live in, in this era where animal use is obvious and in, inobvious and inherent and invisible. And so we are making those stories visible because those animals matter. Because a pig, they say, is as smart as any dog or as smart as your three-year-old. Mm. They're complex. Chickens are complex. They have incredible, incredibly developed emotional lives. They don't experience just the basics, fear and happiness, but they experience jealousy and anxiety and a lot of the things that we experience. So if they can, don't they have a right to a happy life and to freedom of choice, uh, that all things that we deny them, deny billions of them every single day. Yeah, exactly. Thinking, feeling, beings who have the um, ability and who do suffer, the very definition of sentience. Exactly. I want to talk about the impact, or actually I want to learn about the impact that your work has had over the past 20 years of of your imagery. Can you talk about a single project or a single image even that has had a positive impact for animals and maybe just share share a story with us? Luckily, I have lots of those. And that's also what keeps driving us forward is that our images are used internationally in campaigns every single day. And it's those campaigners who are really pushing the envelope and getting people signing petitions and changing laws. One of the stories that I can share is that I was working with an NGO to do an investigation into a fur farm. To be honest, fur farms across Canada. Mm. And there was one that was particularly awful and terrible and 
animals who had chewed off their own limbs and who were starving and dehydrated and barely alive, but still able to breed and um, produce animals for the fur industry. These were foxes and mink. And because of the investigative work we did, that organization was able to obtain a warrant to search the properties and all of the animals were confiscated. Uh, Many, unfortunately, were euthanized, humanely, of course. But uh, a lot of those animals went on to be rescued and have a different life. That led to the first criminal charges against uh, a fur farmer in Canada. And that farm is no longer allowed to participate in fur farming. So that's one of many examples. Congratulations. I mean, that must be the kind of outcome that gives you the energy to keep doing the work that you're doing when you can see something change like that, something so monumental. Yeah, that energy is really needed. Change is really needed because the work is so hard. You've mentioned this once or twice. Investigative work is just absolutely brutal because we're there to document conditions, living and lack of living for these millions of animals, but we can't help those. And that's something that a lot of conflict photographers struggle with and suffer from PTSD from is that we're there to show and not to, you know, put all of those people or all those animals on a plane with us and get out of there. Yeah. Which of course you must really feel the urge to do when you're with those animals um, and see the conditions that they're in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've certainly been unfairly attacked for not helping animals more than I do, but come on. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm jumping about from country to country working with new people. I don't know all the vets. I don't, you know, sometimes I'm in a broiler facility, which is, you know, one of the many euphemisms from the industry. Broilers are meat chickens. And you go into a meat chicken facility and you meet a million animals in these barns. Um, Yeah. Though sometimes I do photograph open rescues and liberations. So that has been really nice to see the before and the after of those very lucky few. Right. I mean, that's a tough call too. I mean, I imagine to do that documentation, you have to be in some ways uh, in a state of neutrality, right, to be able to do that work. So if you were to try and rescue every animal that you came across that was suffering, um, especially when there's millions or thousands or whatever the situation is in a factory farm, for instance, I mean, you wouldn't be able to get to the other work that you're doing as well. I mean, that would just, you're one person. Yeah, I encourage other people to liberate, liberate as many animals as you can, my friends, get out there. I don't just mean the factory farms. I mean, work on getting animals out of zoos and get animals that are in captivity transferred to places of care and sanctuary. There's, you know, there's so much that we can do. Uh, You used a word there that was interesting um, about shooting. When I go into these places, you mentioned being in a place of neutrality. And that's something that I have had to learn and assess and relearn over time. I think when I started, I was not, I think, I know that when I started, I was extremely emotional. I mean, to this day, I'm emotional. I I have to try not to shake because I'm so sad and so fearful of the situation that I'm in and what I'm seeing. I wouldn't say that I'm in a position of neutrality or that I try to achieve neutrality. What I try to achieve is uh, focus and professionalism. Mm If I stamp out the feelings that I'm having, the pictures won't be as good and I won't connect as much with the animals. And so while the feelings are there and very important while I'm working, it's also very important for me to keep at the forefront of my mind that I may only have five more minutes in this farm 
to take excellent life-changing images before we get a code read and we have to make a run for it. Yeah. So I have to focus on doing a really good job, which means focusing on lighting and connection and good angles. So it's a lot. It's hard work. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. When you're taking photos and in the act of doing your work and you're looking into the eyes of an individual captive animal who is being exploited, who is suffering, what do you see? And if you could be their voice, what do they seem to be saying? Yeah. Oh, I I like how you put that. You said if I could be their voice and I'm always so careful around that. Um, However, I guess I do have some expertise. Mm -hmm. And so I will say that what they are saying, what their eyes are saying, their eyes are full of questions. When they see us humans, the questions and and their eyes and the expressions on their faces are questions like, who are you? What are you going to do? What's next? Some of them are um, resigned because they've been there for so long, they can't even turn around in a cage. You see resignation, but most often you see fear because what they have experienced is only carelessness and brutality from us. Uh, There are no farmers and people in factory farms where there are millions of animals or tens of thousands of animals who are going to give any kind of kindness or time of day. That's not why those animals are there. Those animals are production units. Sometimes they're even called inventory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they're not going to get any kind of care. They're only going to get pushed around, shoved around, teeth cut, tails docked, vaccinations, tattoos, shoved into crates, shoved onto trucks. So I guess that's my answer. Their, their eyes are, are full of questions and full of fear. And it's just stunning to see how they can recover from that when those lucky few are rescued, are given care, are given a sanctuary home. It's extremely touching to see them recover and to see them get to live in a way where they can express their needs and do what they want. And when I do meet those few, and luckily I do, it also fuels me to work as hard as I can. Because when you see the pleasure that they can experience, it yeah, makes you want to push that much harder for the rest of them. Yeah. And that's the positive part of the story, right? It seems to me that there is a growing trend in terms of micro sanctuaries and lots of individual people doing whatever they can to rescue just a few individuals from these huge exploitive industries. Are you seeing... That as well, this kind of growth in individuals who are wanting to do something and are taking it upon themselves to get a few animals out of these conditions and give them a happy life. We are seeing a lot of that. It is one solution, but it's not the solution, that's for sure, because we can rescue so few animals and animals cost a lot to care for. You know, you might rescue 10 chickens and have them in your backyard, but in order for them to get proper care and one of them sick, you might end up with a $2,000 vet bill for one chicken on one day. And so it's not sustainable. What can you do with that $2,000? And I don't want to sound too utilitarian. I support rescues massively and I want everyone to do that and to do well in it. But I guess what I'm getting at here is if we want to tackle the root of the problem, 
uh, a really easy way for all of us to help curb the suffering is to stop eating animals. <laughs> there, I said it. <laughs> I said the thing. I said the easy thing that we can all do is to stop eating animals, yeah. which will stop perpetuating this cycle of extreme violence. Because that's where the vast majority of this suffering is happening, let's face it. Exactly. I was thinking of Jonathan Safran's book, Eating Animals, which I read about 10 years ago. And he wrote that book, right, because I went and did all that incredible research for several years, three years, four years, because he had a toddler, a son he was bringing up, and he wanted to be able to guide his son well in the ethics of living as a good human um, in this world, in this time, and that was his motivation. And I'm so grateful for anyone who is venturing to talk about non-human animals when it comes to living ethically and living as a good human. Often our circle of compassion includes only humans or perhaps an environmental cause that we care about. But um, what we have seen, I remember this interesting statistic I heard maybe six or seven years ago about all of the money that's funneled into philanthropic efforts in the world only about 5% of it is given to animal and environmental causes combined, and the rest is for humanity. So there's the answer for when people say, hey, why are you fighting for animals? Like, what about humans? Well, don't worry. <laughs> there is a lot of work there, but we need to work more for humans. We need to work more for animals and the environment. Now is the time. As you know, things are just so bad right now. It's an absolute state of emergency, and it's really exciting to see young people growing up knowing that they have to take a stand on climate change, that they have to curb their consumerism, that there's a lot to be done in that regard. It's definitely different from our generations, isn't it? So I have hope. And working for animals is working for humans. I mean, you could make that argument on, on many lines. Yes. Especially in a time of pandemic. Ah, yeah. Like ask the slaughterhouse workers during a pandemic. Man, terrible jobs anyway. And even worse, during a pandemic where COVID is spreading amongst them because they're forced to do this backbreaking work because we're eating animals. Yeah, I, I often think about those workers. So they're being exploited as well. And they are working in horrible conditions and having to perform horrific acts of killing day in and day out. And the toll that that must take on the human soul um, for yes. tens of thousands of people. There's a fantastic book by Gail Eisnitz called Slaughterhouse that I recommend to anyone listening. It's a very good read and it's about the slaughterhouse workers. It's uh, a few years old now. There are ongoing books showing the pain and the problems of working in, in a slaughterhouse. On your We Animals website, you categorize or you seem to categorize your work into industries. There's research, there's food, there's entertainment. There are religious traditions where, frankly, um, some of the most shocking imagery seems to live. There's so many industries where abuse and violence against animals is rampant. Which industry do you think your work has positively impacted the most and how? 
Oh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I can say where we've made the most positive impact, but our focus is largely food animals, factory farmed animals, because those are the animals suffering in the highest numbers at our hands. And we're having an increased focus on fish as well, because we can't even say how many fish are farmed and caught, not to mention all the bycatch, because we don't measure those in terms of individuals the way we do with factory farmed animals. We measure them by the ton. So we continue to turn our focus there and we have wonderful funders who are on board with us and uh, we have a mutual goal of curbing factory farming, therefore curbing as much suffering as possible. You know, any activity that aims to expose injustice, there's a counter reaction from the status quo. So here in the US, we have these appalling so-called ag-gag laws. Can you help our listeners understand what those are and how they impact the work that you're doing? Those are laws that are going to be overturned one by one. <laughs> Start there. They're absolutely ridiculous. We have them in Canada as well. We have them in two of our provinces. Ag-gag laws aim to stifle whistleblowers who are working inside and people like me who are now even not allowed to take images of factory farms from a road, from public property. And these laws are passed because of a lot of money and lobbying. I just find it incredible that so much time and effort can be going into protecting these industries from visibility. But they know that if we all had a close look of the true conditions in there, that a lot of people would not buy their products and would make a stink and would demand them to spend more money for better welfare. Or some people would just not eat those animals. Just turn away. What we're seeing, yeah, is um, these laws popping up, but then they get overturned a couple of years later. Seems really unconstitutional and unethical. It's unfortunate because it's a waste of time for us animal advocates having to battle these ag-gag laws. Mm -hmm. We'd much rather be making more progress than that. And that's part of it, right? The point is also to stifle progress in animal advocacy. Ah, it's a shame. It's a pain in the ass. Uh, yeah, I bet it is. <laughs> it's a pain in the ass. I mean, now in the US, for example, I, if I trespass where this ag-gag, I can be charged federally under the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. I could be considered a terrorist for doing something compassionate, but not the industries, perpetrators, come on. It's just insane. The perpetrators of the terror, they get away with it. Yeah. They seem to have so much power, these industries. And I guess that was part of my follow-up question to you is, are we regressing rather than progressing when you look at the power of these industries and some of these laws that they do manage to get passed, even if it is only for a period of time? What's your overall sense, Joe, of Let's just talk about North America. Let's talk about Canada and the United States. When it comes to respecting animals and treating them humanely, do you think we are progressing or do you think we're not so much? It seems to me that both are happening. Mm. Yeah, you know, meat eating is not on the decline, but eating vegetarian and vegan and reducitarianism, those are rising movements. However, there are more and more of us and we're all consuming a lot more of everything which is why you're seeing both. And to go beyond North America, if we look at the BRIC countries and their rising economies, we're seeing that the trend is more meat eating, which is really scary because those are countries with massive populations. So there's a lot of work to do. 
and that work is happening. We're seeing a growth of animal advocacy in India, uh, where there's also a growth of meat eating. Really exciting things happening in China. They really are bursting with plant-based initiatives and plant-based eating. I'm hopeful what China is going to do and teach the rest of the world in that regard. Well, especially as, a, as an emerging dominant superpower, they could have a lot of impact yeah. and a lot of effect on the rest of the world. Yes. Is your sense with China, I'm interested in that, is your sense with them that it's an animal welfare issue for them or is it linked more to climate change? Because, of course, meat eating is terrible for the amount of oh, CO2 and methane and everything else that ends up in our atmosphere and heats the planet. Yeah, that's a really good question and I don't have the answer to it. I would hope that it's a mix of all of these reasons. There is an activist and filmmaker who I know in China named Zhen Yi, and he and his organization, the China Vegan Society, have just created the Chinese character for the word vegan because there wasn't one. There were characters close to it, and so they actually combined one to create a Chinese character for vegan, which is just beautiful. And I know that their work is booming. There's a lot of interest in his work. And I think his other institute is called the Good Food Institute. So lots going on there. I hope to spend more time there, Some spend time there rather, and yeah. uh, work with them and learn from them and contribute to the good organizations and the good work happening there. Have you been to China before? You've been to 60 countries, no. right? <laughs> yeah, I stopped counting at 60. I figured that was plenty. But I haven't been to China. I have worked nearby and I have worked with my incredible colleagues in Taiwan and Thailand. But uh, yeah, I aim to get over there soon. Okay, great. Um, we've talked a lot about industry. I wanted to ask you a question about individual responsibility because, of course, there are individuals who hurt and kill animals as well as these big mega industries. You know, there's the poacher who takes the tusks from an African elephant for the illicit trade in wildlife parts. I can remember traveling in Latin America in some of the poorest regions of Peru where human survival is so tenuous, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, so hand-to-mouth, that caring for a dog or a chicken or a sloth or a jaguar is the last thing that many people are concerned about. And I just saw a lot of abuse everywhere I looked of animals. How do we change this situation and the apparent lack of empathy in situations like that? The two things that come to mind are working on getting people out of poverty and humane education, which really needs to take a long view. And it does, it takes a long view. Humane education can take generations. It's cultural as well. Have people in their own cultures who are thinking about these issues, bring sensitivity to other animals into the schools, make it a regular conversation, not just a bring a speaker in for one hour once a year kind of conversation. Yeah, humane education, I have a lot of faith in that. We're seeing a growth of it in the US, especially. Uh, there's a lot of movement here in Canada as well. I see humane ed as, yeah, something that's as important as the sciences and all the other classes that we take. It's important for us to learn math, but it's also important for us to learn to be good people and to care for others and to see others. And before we can care for others, they have to be visible to us and their stories have to be made, made visible. And that's what humane education is, whether we're talking about people, animals, the planet. 
guess the first time I've actually heard that term, humane education. I imagine you're participating in doing some of that yourself. Yes. You can now get a master's degree in humane education. And there's an institute founded by Zoe Weil based in Massachusetts, Maine, perhaps. So their website is humaneeducation.org. And then the Canadian equivalent is humaneeducation.ca. And we're seeing lots of these programs now and a lot of interest from teachers, just really bringing social responsibility and care for others into regular curriculum. It's really exciting. Oh, there I did it again. It's really (laughs) exciting. (laughs) Well, it is. So let's talk a little bit about the generation of young photographers that you seem to be inspiring to turn their lenses towards the plight of animals. You have this We Animals archive where you have contributors now who have taken tens of thousands of images along with yourself that you are releasing and allowing anybody to use in their work free of charge. I took a few down yesterday, actually, and made a little donation to to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, thank you. How else are you organizing your collective work now that you have more photographers that are interested in this animal photojournalism so that you can have the greatest impact in the future? I guess my question is, given the urgency of the cause, Joe, what's the strategy for all of you guys that are doing this work? Strategy is one of our favorite words here at We Animals Media. So if we're going to do the best that we can, how to do that, which steps, in what order, it's not stuff that I thought a lot about. So I'm really grateful to have such a passionate team working with me and guiding me and making decisions collectively. What we decided to do was create a home for animal photojournalism, which is We Animals Media, and which is our stock site. It's a place where people can go for our resources, film, photography, writing. We have a large number of contributors now whose work is on the site. And we wanted to make it available for free because if we put a price tag on everything, then fewer people are going to use the work. For-profit agencies do have to buy the images and people are encouraged to make donations for image use. You know, we went from the Animals Project to the stock site, which had over 10,000 videos and photos. And now we've created a photo agency, the first of its kind, as far as we can see, dedicated to animal photojournalism. So yeah, strategy, 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 and strategy in who we speak with and who we work with, the choices we make, you know, used to be just me going by the seat of my pants doing whatever I was passionate about, which was everything. It was exhausting. (laughs) I used to be be on the road like six to eight months a year, but the images too often would just end up on my hard drive. That's not effective. So now there are fewer shoots, but we do a lot more with them. Cultivate relationships with media. And I guess the point of this is that people who want to be photographers, they see themselves or, you know, they are out on the road taking pictures. But if you want to be effective in the world, if you have a point with these images, well, you also have to have a desk job. You also have to be doing the grind of the business of getting the images out into the world. Bit of advice that I give to photographers all the time is, you know, reduce the amount of shooting and increase the time you put into getting the work out into the world. Otherwise, what's the point? Which I imagine doesn't resonate with all of the photographers that you might advise that to. All the young and up and coming. Well, it barely resonates with me. It barely (laughs) resonates with me. Like, I don't want to have a desk job. 
I want to be out exploring. That's why I picked up the camera in the first place. But no, I mean, my primary goal is to help as many animals as possible. So that's the path I must take. And there are rules (laughs) that I must follow in order to do that. (laughs) It's the creative part of the work and having an impact as well that, that brings the joy, not necessarily the grind that is part of any creative endeavor if you want it to get out into the world. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, now We Animals Media has such a fantastic balance of people who are operations focused and strategy focused, fundraising focused. Uh, It's a beautiful machine. It's a beautiful, mighty little machine. And we really need all of these people with their different skills at the table so that we can be effective as possible. It can be really daunting if you're focused on the goal far ahead, the big picture. People ask me all the time, like, what's your goal? I could say animal liberation, global animal liberation, which is true, but I would fall flat on my back and be immobile with the grandiosity of that. I wouldn't be able to do anything if I was focused on like what needs to happen ahead of time. And that so often can stop us from taking those initial steps. This is daunting. I do think it's really important in animal advocacy to aim high, but look at what you can accomplish in a week and take small steps. I've been working at this for 20 years and the team and I have now achieved a lot, but that takes a long time. And so we have to learn to be happy enough achieving what we can in a day and in a week. And that might mean publishing one picture. That might be ticking off one box of the 5,000 boxes, you know, there, but that's how you make progress. And that's how we make progress in animal liberation and in photography and as an entrepreneur. What you're saying there ties in really strongly to the question and the answer about resilience and how you can keep doing this type of work for a long period of time. That's a great tie-in. I agree. That's exactly where we can go with this. Hi, it's Susan. Sentient Planet amplifies the voices of the species with whom we share the Earth and the humans dedicated to their urgent defense and preservation. We're providing additional content at patreon.com slash sentientplanet. I hope you'll check it out and consider supporting us for a few dollars a month. Thank you. I wanted to actually talk a little bit about your artistic choices, Joe, when it comes to the images that you do publish. So when it comes to exploitation and violence against animals, it seems to me there's a fine line. I'm making some assumptions here, but I would imagine in your shoes, there's a fine line between bringing someone in to see the truth of what's happening without pushing them with an image so that they feel like they need to look away because what is being brought to light can be so shocking and horrific. So I've noticed that when you are publishing your images, you're not showing, unless I've missed them, I'm not seeing actual acts of violence There seems to be images of of the moment potentially before violence, images of what remains post-violence, and of course there are haunting images that you have of animals who are alive but living in torturous conditions. So I imagine there's quite conscious decisions that you're making around what you put out into the world, and is it for the reason that I'm assuming? Thanks for those observations, and you're right, there's a lot of consideration into what to publish and when and for which audiences. 
if we're going to show the worst of the worst, which I would say is the final act of violence, the ending of a life, that is going to require a lot of context and hand-holding for the audience. And we don't do that often because you're going to lose audiences. Uh, it's extremely painful to see that kind of violence against others. So things do need to have a certain amount of subtlety and nuance. You see that in conflict photography as well. It's not often the moment of violence that is the most impactful image, but an aftermath, an emotion, something fleeting, something unsuspecting that shows what the experience is for that person or for that animal. Sometimes it's more impactful to show languishing, a pig in a gestation crate lying there without much feeling and then to caption that saying, you know, she has been here probably after six or seven births for three years now, uh, lying in her own filth that can have more of an impact than the images of, of direct violence. I do show, shoot those images often and you find them in our book, Hidden, Hidden Animals in the Anthropocene, which we just published. But yes, we have to be very careful about what is published where. I used to think that we could show any of these images and anyone looking at them would say, oh my God, this is a travesty. I'm not participating in this, in this anymore, but that's not how people work. We turn away because we are afraid of our own suffering when we confront suffering. We have a terrible relationship with suffering because we're so afraid of it. We don't realize that we can learn and grow from it. And so we protect ourselves from our own suffering by not confronting the suffering of others. <laughs> it's a whole thing. It sure is. Yeah. And so if people aren't going to change immediately by viewing suffering, then there's a lot of handholding and a lot of consideration and a lot of strategy involved in order to reach people. And art. The images have to be artful, just as we see in every kind of photography. If you want someone to engage in an image, it has to be beautiful and curious and has to draw you in. Well, you, you do that you do that incredibly well to say the least. How do you personally handle bearing witness to what you bear witness to? I think that you get better at it over time. You learn to, uh, well, I shouldn't say one learns to, I learned to compartmentalize, not in an unhealthy way, but in a, in a healthy way. I think if you stuff things, emotions down too much, it can make you sick. I would say that I live alongside the horrors of the world, knowing very well that they exist at every moment of every day. And yet I have one short opportunity to live a happy and joyous life full of all the good stuff. And I want that for myself. So I choose that. But I had to learn how to do that. I did suffer from PTSD ongoing, I suppose. And I, I did have two bouts with depression, which I had therapy for. And now have had you know, a long career, <laughs> career in this. I've had a lot of time to negotiate how to do this. I would say that to anyone listening and anyone who's bearing witness, it's important to feel because feelings will galvanize you. You learn from that. But it's also important to consciously put it aside and enjoy your life. Enjoy your one precious human life. <laughs> I could go off on a tangent, but I'm not going to. I, I'm going to ask you another question instead. Thank you for your response to that. It was beautifully put. 
what are the risks to you personally when you're out there doing this work? So mm-hmm. help us understand what you do in a day when you are on the road and you are going to take images uh, of things that there are certain interests uh, who really don't want that imagery to get out into the world. Well, for example, we've talked about how I would be considered a terrorist and I could go to jail for a long time if I were to do this work in ag-gag states. There is physical violence. Many of my investigator friends have been caught, beaten up, uh, even beaten with baseball bats. Uh, all sorts of violence has happened to them or their, you know, their cars smashed with baseball bats and all this. So you have to be very careful. I am one of the most careful investigators out there, <laughs> annoyingly so to some of my colleagues. But these things should be taken seriously. There's a lot of people and money and governments that protect animal industries. So they will go to great lengths to stifle you and to keep you off properties and to make sure images aren't published, lawsuits everywhere, jail time, fines. It's not work that one should ever do lightly and not work that anyone should do alone. Have you experienced violence personally, fines, lawsuits? Has this happened to you as well? Unbelievably not. It's probably only a matter of time. That's what I say to most investigators, especially if you're doing this work in the long term. So if that happens to me, well, I think the best that I can do is use it to bring attention to the work that I'm doing. Great. Let's go on to a happier topic here. So you told me that you are um, half Canadian and half Australian and that your family is from Geelong. Um, Obviously, (laughs) I'm from Australia. Unfortunately, that country has quite a few dirty secrets when it comes to animal use and abuse. One that I'd like to bring to light for our listeners that they may not know about is the live export trade, which Animals Australia and Lynn White have been trying to bring down for years. You've witnessed that trade firsthand and, and taken photographs. Can you talk about it and tell our listeners what that's all about? I absolutely love Animals Australia and Lynn White. I'll just tangentially here mentioned that we have a project called Unbound and it's about women on the front lines of animal advocacy worldwide and the women at Animals Australia are women that we featured in that project. Uh, I have worked on live transport with them and globally animals are transported by truck and ship all over the world unnecessarily. They can spend days without food and water. Uh, I spent time at the Turkish-Bulgarian border photographing animals that were, you know, coming from way north. Huge, huge, huge problem. A lot of suffering, a lot of death. I was in Israel on the water meeting one of the ships coming in from Australia. It had been at sea for, I believe, 22 days. It had between 20 and 30,000 animals on board. A lot of them die. You can imagine, like, they don't have sea legs cramped conditions, the filth. What I found incredible when I was in Israel is that I learned that it's normal for bodies, animal bodies, to wash up on Israeli Israel's public beaches because so many of the animals are tossed overboard. And I was only there a week and I had the opportunity to photograph a body disintegrating on the beach. Uh, come on, guys. I mean, that part is about us and how gross and awful that is. But 
uh, it's unnecessary. So animals are live transported so that other countries can have quote unquote fresh meat or can be killed halal. Absolutely unnecessary. I hear that New Zealand is banning live transport starting next year after one of the ships that, that had left New Zealand sank. So that's good. That fight needs to continue. And I would say that uh, live transport, especially by sea, absolutely needs to be abolished because it's absolutely unnecessary. Then, of course, there were the great fires. You went to Australia to document the impact of the fires on animals. And there's this one photo you took of an eastern grey kangaroo and her joey standing before a backdrop of a scorched forest landscape. And that became quite iconic and also won you a Nature Photographer of the Year Award in 2020. Can you describe how you took that photo, where you were, and how you managed to capture that iconic image. I was working with Animals Australia as well as Vets for Compassion. And we were in a eucalyptus plantation. They were getting starving and dehydrated koalas out of trees. This is after the fires had ripped through Malakuta. Amidst the plantation were uh, dead kangaroos, but there was also this living kangaroo with her joey. And I saw her through the trees, but I was at the wrong angle. And I knew if I could get that picture, that it would be an award-winning picture. These feelings, these, these visuals, like they don't happen often in a career, like when you can see it happening ahead of time and you're just hoping to hell that you can capture it. And so I had about a hundred feet to walk before I would get to the right spot. And I knew that I would also have to kneel down to get more at the level that I wanted. And it was just this long, long, slow. No, a fast walk, but like this dreaded feeling that I wouldn't get the image. And she stayed, she just stayed there watching me as I walked closer and closer. And I was setting my cameras to the right settings and trying to stay calm. And I got to her and I took a picture. And as I was crouching down, I was taking pictures. And then I crouched and I got that one picture of her looking at me and then she bounded away. And it's an iconic image because, you know, the kangaroos are, of course, emblematic to Australia. I, I believe they're the national animal. So is eucalyptus, also an iconic Australian plant. And, uh, and here is the symbol of the continent. It's an image of devastation, but it's also an image of hope. Her backdrop is her home. It's not even a real natural home. It's a plantation. It's a eucalyptus plantation because we have destroyed so many of Australia's forests. But she's looking at us and it reminds me of that piece of writing by Emile Zola, uh, J'accuse, and she's accusing us and her eyes are looking at us, you know, looking into my lens. You did this to us. This is your fault. But here I am standing strong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look at the damage that we have wrought, perhaps, is what those eyes may be saying, or that you have wrought. Because whether it's in a factory farm or a fur farm or a huge industrialized shipping vessel, or whether it's climate change that is creating 
the conditions for massive fires like that that can destroy so much terrestrial space, the through line always comes back to us and our activity. Sure does. And that is why eye contact is so important in my work. Because if that kangaroo is looking at me and into my lens, or that rabbit who's next in line for slaughter, or that calf who's 20 minutes old, wet from birth, taken away from her mother, she's in a wheelbarrow, all of those animals who are looking at me are looking out at you, looking at the audience, and asking us the questions that I see in their eyes when I go to them. What's happening? What is going to happen to me next? We have all the answers and they have all the questions and it is simply unfair. Yeah. You mentioned um, your book, Hidden Animals in the Anthropocene, which came out last October. It, um, I noticed has a foreword by Joaquin Phoenix, who of course is a very dedicated animal rights activist. Would you like to describe that book project for people? It was inspired by war photographer James Noctway. He created a book called Inferno, which was decades of his work on the things that we do to one another, genocide, famine caused by displacement, uh, civil war, and beautiful, stunning, heartbreaking images. And when I saw that book long ago, probably 15 years ago, I knew that I eventually wanted to do a book of that magnitude for animals, that they deserved such a book, an indictment of what we do and what should never again be. And so I always had that in mind, even though I, I put out other books, smaller books, but I knew to do this book well, I needed a great team. I needed the work of many photographers, not just me. And so this is a book that was co-edited by myself and my incredible friend, Keith Wilson. He is an animal journalist, uh, Australian as well, but based in the UK. Uh, we have our designer, David Griffin from National Geographic and Washington Post. We have a really strong team and incredible contributors. Uh, in fact, there are 40 of us who contributed to this book. It has done very, very well. It's an incredibly difficult book to look at. It's full of violence and sorrow. But we made a book because books have more staying power than the news and social media. We wanted to create a tome, a five-pound tome of what is and should never again be. And so this book has 320 pages. Uh, lots of writing on the various industries and how we treat animals, lots of facts and figures. It's already gone into its third printing. And last year it won Photography Book of the Year by an international competition called Pictures of the Year International. And we're very, very proud and very pleased that the book is doing what we set out for it to do, which is to create conversations. And people often ask, how many books have you sold? Well, we've, we've sold a few. And, but what's important is to create the book and then continue the conversations and have the conversations be really mega big with big media and popular journalists. And, and so that continues. And sometimes it doesn't matter, right, whether you're reaching millions and squillions of people, but... Who are the people that you are reaching and how is that activating them? Yes. I'll tell you a fun thing about producing that book. So it was crowdfunded, like my other books, and we hemmed and hawed over the exact amount to ask for. And we put that number at 65,000 Canadian, which felt astronomical. We didn't know if we would achieve it over the course of two months, but we put the book out and launched the Indiegogo campaign. And we reached that amount in three days. There was so much support. 
and not from the animal advocacy community. It was like all these names that I didn't know, all these people from all over the world making small and very large donations to the project. And to date, we have uh, made over a quarter of a million dollars. Now, all of this money is being channeled into printing more books and sending the books out for free to influential people. So we're definitely not making a lot of money on it, but we're using that money to do more of this work. Congratulations. That's fantastic influence that you're having. I just want to hone in on something that you said there. You talked about the book being a tome to what is and what should never again be. Can you imagine a time in the future when, and I don't know when this time in the future might be, I don't know whether it's close or far away, where humans are going to pick up that book and just be so perplexed and appalled that we went through a time like the one that we're going through that was so brutal to so many other living beings. I don't think I can add to that. You've said that very well, and that is my hope. But going back to what I said earlier about not focusing on those hopes every day because it would be tiresome to see how long it'll take to get there. And I don't think it'll happen in one fell swoop. We'll see different countries making different advancements towards improving laws for animals, uh, animal welfare, and abolishing horrible practices, animals in research, animals in fur farms. I mean, we're seeing these things happen in different places at different uh, rates. Yes, I, I want this to be a history book. Uh, I want it to be a reminder of how bad things once were and that they should never return to, to that way. We should be haunted by the book, by those images, by those individuals. Yeah. Well, Joe, it's been a real privilege to speak with you today and to explore your work. I'm a great admirer of it and everything that you're doing. I wish you all the best and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for caring so much about all of the others and uh, for helping bring my work to light. I really appreciate it. For more about today's guest, as well as actions for animal justice that you can take, please visit sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod. We're also on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast, and you can support our work on Patreon. Susan Woodward is your host and content producer. Our social media and outreach manager is Ari Simmons. Sound engineering by Liam Wilkinson. Art direction by Janet Grimwade. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. All interstitial music by Stella Drone. Our love to all beings. Thanks for listening.